Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, just in time for Christmas, we're listening to an interview with Anna Della Subin about her really, really fascinating book, Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. That's right. Um, The book explores the many different instances, you know, sort of throughout history when men, um, always mortal, um, found themselves uh, exalted into some kind of deity. And there are some really fascinating examples. I mean, the one that she starts with is um, Haley Selassie, who was, who is famously considered to be God by, um, by Rastafarians, um, but there's lots of other examples. So yeah, we thought this was a perfect Christmas show. Yeah, because Jesus was just a regular guy before he turned into God. My, my As my dad loves to joke, every single year without fail, just a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. The greatest Jewish boy to have ever lived. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, um, don't, don't tell him that. I've heard, it, <laughs> I've heard it too many times. Don't tell your dad or don't tell Jesus? Uh, no, don't tell my dad. He'll keep making the jokes. I have less interactions with Jesus than I do with my dad. So um, <laughs> you can tell Jesus anything you like. Okay. Well, um, next, time I, next time I talk to him, I'll let him know. Anyways, All let's right. listen to the interview. Let's do it. excited to be speaking with the writer Anadella Subin today. Subin's essays have appeared in the New York Review of Books, Harper's, the London Review of Books, and the New York Times, among other publications, and she's a senior editor at the magazine Badoon. She joins us to speak about her fascinating new book, Accidental Gods, on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. It traces the little-told history of the deification of living men in modern times, revealing the phenomena's connection to imperial conquest, revolution, and civil war. Taking Columbus's arrival in the New World, when he exploited his reception by Native people as a deity come from the heavens as a starting point, the book extends to in-depth studies of figures such as the Ethiopian king, Haile Selassie, coronated as the god of the Rastafarians in Jamaica, to Britain's Prince Philip, who became the center of a new religion on an island in the South Pacific, to the Theosophist anointment of Krishnamurti. What does it mean to make a man a god? Why is it always a man? And what might that say about notions of masculinity, the place of religion in our society, and the way political power translates into divinity? Welcome to the show, Anadella. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Maybe we should start with the work that you did that brought you to this really interesting subject. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to writing about men turned divine? Yeah, so the idea for the book kind of came to me as a strange epiphany exactly a decade ago. I was working as an editor for Badoon magazine, and when the revolution began in Egypt, we decided to pick up the office and move to Cairo, just off of Takriya Square, to try to pay homage to what was happening there. And so we arrived into this moment of kind of pure political ecstasy just after the fall of Mubarak. And we were thinking a lot about what moves people to act politically, to risk their lives for political ideas. And we later decided to make an issue around the phrase soft power. 
So how do you move people without harder forces of violence or coercion? And so I was thinking a lot about charismatic autocrat. And at one point I had this thought, well, what happens if you possess too much soft power? You might suddenly find yourself becoming a god, like Haile Selassie in the Rastafari religion. And so I just became obsessed with his story, like how a man on one side of the earth could become a god on the other side without ever consenting to it, and how dismayed Haile Selassie was by his divinity and all the paradoxes of how the worship of a dictator could become this kind of profoundly liberating theology in Jamaica. And so I began to search for other instances of this, and I started constructing this figure of the accidental god in my mind. Once I thought about him as an archetype, I began to see him everywhere. So the accidental god is a person who's had divinity thrust upon him through forces of accident or fate or coincidence. He's not someone who's a spiritual leader in his community or a zealous cult founder. He's someone who finds himself a god unwittingly or inadvertently. And so when I started searching for more instances of him, the project just took off from there and it sustained me for an entire decade, which is kind of hard to believe. That's so interesting. And the connection to autocrats is something that seems so obvious. And even just thinking about, you know, colonizers, the difference between absolute power on one hand and divinity on the other. To me, reading the book, they seem to overlap so much. You know, Holly Selassie ruled Ethiopia, for instance, for decades and decades. And that connection to being a god, not having anything you do undercut your divinity, that it would be absolute once you're a god. You know, Holly Selassie, for instance, in Ethiopia, was not a great ruler and ignored famines, but that didn't stop. Jamaicans from believing that he was their god of the Rastafarians. So can you talk about how we should think of those things as different? What's the difference between absolute power of the political and absolute power of the divine? Yeah. So in the book, I'm arguing that creating gods is always a political act. I put it differently. Political power it's always making a claim about who is more than human or who's less than human. And I think that's why, to me at least, the ideas of political theology, as described by the philosopher Carl Schmitt, the idea that all political ideas are actually sacred ideas in a new form is just so compelling. And I think in the project, I was really trying to find a new, just like a new way to kind of look at the relationship between the political and the religious and kind of, I began this project long before Trump came on the scene, but just even, you know, watching what's happened in America in the past few years kind of furthered this sense that like you kind of need to look at ideas of divinity in order to understand the political. So maybe we can get into some of the examples that you bring up here. And with Selassie, one of the things that struck me and sort of connected to what we're talking about is the major role that political theater played in establishing him, him as a divinity in Jamaica. And you see that sort of occur over and over again, where it's, it's almost excellent PR campaigns that do this. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened with Selassie and maybe explain what role political theater and the media played in establishing him as a potential 
divinity on earth. When Haile Selassie was coronated as emperor, this kind of came out of a moment of political struggle within Ethiopian dynasties. And he was, you know, speaking about soft power, he was kind of throwing all the stops of political theater in his coronation and inviting all the powers of the earth to Addis Ababa. And National Geographic magazine covered the coronation. And that, in a really interesting way, actually became a sacred text in the religion of Rastafari, because that was how people on the other side of the earth knew of what had happened. And they kind of saw that a Black king had been crowned in Africa and in a sense that, you know, could only be interpreted as biblical by many early Rastafari thinkers who saw the text. But National Geographic, the issue, it's kind of only just one Across the book, there are so many different new modern forms of media that become catalysts for gods being created. For instance, on the island of Tana, among those who worship Prince Philip as God, they're reading newspapers, they're following the internet, Twitter, the BBC, and all of this becomes material for new religions, kind of the raw material of scripture. It just struck me that the role, I think you don't think of media as playing a role in events like this. I knew about Selassie in Jamaica, but I didn't realize about the coverage in National Geographic and the image of kings bowing to him, of that really speaking to a nascent Black power movement. And so it makes sense. It makes sense, but it's such an interesting intermediary between politics and divinity, where you said you also sort of have media in between those two. It's certainly a paradoxical document because the article in National Geographic that covered the coronation was actually written by the American consul general, who was this white guy from Kentucky, who was just the kind of like the least likely scribe for a scripture of a Black power movement. But that's you know, something that comes up all across the book, kind of how unlikely sources become new scriptures or new, the raw material of creating new myths, because people are always looking to grasp what's around them to find new ways of transcendence. Maybe you could talk about the different kinds of gods that emerged in your research, and if it was a singular quality you know, among men that were turned into gods. With Haile Selassie, it was his anointment as an emperor and the the strength and singularity of still ruling an African nation that had never been colonized. And if that was part of his attraction, like strength, or were there other qualities that attracted people to these men? Yeah, so I think what's so striking is just how different all of the gods in the book are. They're different in their personalities and also just like the ways in which one can become divine. So like divinity itself is a spectrum which encompasses, you know, fertility deities, supreme beings, jinn and in an Islamic context, spirits. And just as there are so many ways to be a god, there are so many different characteristics that can lead one to become the subject of an apotheosis. 
So for instance, in the case of the Brigadier General John Nicholson, who's one of the deities in the section of the book that looks at the British Empire in India, he becomes deified because of his sheer violence. He's just a truly psychopathic colonizer and his deification becomes a way for people to try and appropriate his power for themselves and kind of take all the violence that is in him to try and resist and expel the British colonizers. So you have him on one extreme, but then, you know, you also have people like my friend, the 90-year-old poet and anthropologist Nathaniel Tarn, who he appears in kind of what's the most personal chapter of my book, where I realized that actually a person I know became a god unwittingly. His deification happened in Guatemala in the 1950s, and then again in the 1970s. And he was really kind of just in the right place at the right time or wrong place at the wrong time. But he, it was more kind of circumstances rather than his personality. And remind us what his godliness consisted of. (laughs) Yes. So Nathaniel was doing his field work in the village of Santiago Atitlan in the 50s. And at the time, the village was in the midst of a conflict between those who were still worshipped the indigenous deity, the mom, and the kind of more orthodox Catholics. And some Catholic priests had kidnapped the statue of the god and it disappeared. And Nathaniel kind of went on this quest to figure out what had happened to it. The god, it had the form of this mask of the god. And then, so these myths kind of began to circulate about the stranger who had some connection to the disappearance of the god. And then Nathaniel ended up actually tracking down the mask. He sent it to a museum in Paris. Then it was returned to Santiago Atulán in the 70s. And he realized that all of these myths and prophecies had been circling around him and that he was recognized as this figure called Francisco Sojuel, who was a rain deity. And he's telling me this story. And I think that chapter is kind of where I, I let my Wizard of Oz curtain drop a little bit because you see that I'm participating in acts of myth-making myself. And, you know, I'm captivated by him and the stories. And it's kind of about how we're all kind of searching for the eternal around us or some form of transcendence. And sometimes we try to see it in people we know. I just wanted to ask a follow-up question, which is, you know, in the introduction to the book, you talk about a time when divinity was pretty common and when notions of God and just everyday people as being divine was very widespread. And then this break to Judeo-Christian religions where God becomes one person or one thing and it's codified into a single source. Do you think, especially given the spread of Judeo-Christian religions in the new world, does that tension create these gods, are these gods reclaiming an older way of thinking about divinity? In the earliest pages of my book, I'm kind of conjuring an ancient classical Greek and Roman past in which there wasn't such a chasm between the human and the divine. Roman emperors were constantly undergoing rituals of deification and Olympic gods were 
mating with human beings. But then as Christian orthodoxy took shape over the centuries, this idea that God Almighty is entirely different from mankind took hold. And the idea that a person could just become a God became totally implausible. Humankind is completely different from the divine. And there's this great chasm between heaven and earth. So that's the version of the divine which attempts to colonize the rest of the world. That's the kind of Christian hegemonic view that in the so-called dawn of the modern age, when Columbus arrives in the new world and the colonization of the new world begins, the colonization of the new world is also a colonization of the space of divinity and the language of divinity. And in my book, I'm looking at even just the words themselves. So like what words were indigenous people using that the colonizers translated or misinterpreted as God. And so with the colonization of the new world, these Christian doctrine became deeply entrenched in just our worldview. And so the idea that a man could become divine to us might seem like some relic of a primitive past or something that could only happen on a kind of isolated island that's under the grip of a delusion. And in my book, that's what I'm trying to push back on and kind of show that we're all implicated in these myths and that they have a history that's deeply enmeshed with imperialism and our colonial past. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Anadella Subin about her new book, Accidental Gods, on men unwittingly turned divine. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Sam Quinones on the line with us today. His latest book is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And he is here to give us a book recommendation. Sam, what book are you going to recommend? Uh, I think the book that, that most influenced me, I would say, as a young reporter, I'll just say, mm-hmm. is a, a book called Killings by Calvin Trillin. And despite the rather uh, ominous title, it's actually an interesting, uh, I won't say lighthearted, it's certainly not that, but it's, it's lighter than you might imagine because uh, in it, Trillin really um, sets the standard, I think, for crime reporting. And I was becoming a crime reporter at that moment. And basically, I've considered myself such ever since I had a job. I got my first job as a, uh, as a crime reporter in this town of Stockton, California, wonderful California town. People talk bad about Stockton. I don't allow that. Um, I think it's a magnificent <laughs> town. And it's, uh-huh. it, 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 was a, it was my graduate school, honestly. Um, but his idea in this book was to say, um, I, I, the most important thing you can tell, uh, report out of crime is not how people died, um, but how people lived. And when you mm. get into that, when you dig, and, and that that pushes you then to move beyond the police, right? It, it, you have to go to the the, the neighbors, the the the, the family, uh, the the school f- uh, friends, and the business associates, and you have to be more of a reporter uh, because that's where you're going to find the story. 
So one example that it total, I was doing my Calvin Trillin imitation um, when a guy um, by the name of uh, uh, a guy, I can't remember his name, actually. Um, he was murdered after a, um, a bar fight, a bar confrontation. The guy followed him out, of, drove after him and shot him at, a, at, a, at a, an intersection in Stockton. And mm-hmm. I went to cry, try to go find out you know, more about him. And, and I met his son at the hospital. His son got very mad. You're a vulture. And I said, no, I'm trying to, trying to tell a story about your dad. Just tell me who he was. Turns out the guy was, was known, far better known by everybody around the county at, at, um, as Tijuana Elvis. He did a uh, oh, wow. um, uh, Elvis impersonation in Spanish and did so at, at birthday parties and weddings. And everybody knew Tijuana Elvis. He, my, my photographer colleague, he was like, yeah, I, I went to a party with that guy. Oh, my God. You know, nobody knew him by his name. But so I write a story about Tijuana Elvis, how this man just set up a whole business being a Spanish uh, uh, language, you know, uh, uh, Elvis impersonator. And I have Mm -hmm. Calvin Trillin and Killings to thank for that for that story. And a lot of the way I approach uh, crime reporting is due to to that great, great book. Wow. Um, Well, that's a fantastic recommendation. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The, the name of the book is Killings by Calvin Trillin. Thank you so much, Sam. We've been speaking with Sam Quinones. His latest book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. We now return to our conversation with Anadella Subin, author of Accidental Gods. Well, one of the things that comes up when you dive into the colonial past and in Britain in your section on British colonialism is the female divine. And can you talk a little bit about that? What are the instances of uh, women being turned divine? Yeah, so I, you know, when I when I began the project, I actually thought I was going to find more female divine figures. I love the novel A Passage to India, and I really thought I would find more characters like Mrs. Moore in real life, who's this mother who becomes worshipped as divine. And so I was searching for her, but I really couldn't, I didn't set out to write a book completely about men, but I found so few instances of women mistakenly turned into gods. At the back of the book, I have an index of inadvertent deities, and there's about 85 figures and only 10 of them are female. The few figures I found, there were a number of, for instance, British wives of colonizers, And there were certain traditions in India, which the British tried to understand to female divinity and just couldn't. But, you know, what I'm showing in the book is how, you know, the reason why there are so few female figures is because of who was writing the stories. And so often they're, you know, British colonialists, they're like missionaries, when British colonizers arrived in India and encountered all these indigenous traditions of divinity, they didn't try to understand them. So for instance, in in the book, I'm looking at the very controversial practice around sati, which is when a woman 
whose husband has died before her through an accident of fate. She decides to commit suicide and in this way becomes a goddess. So it's this kind of suicidal act of apotheosis. And that's one of one of very few traditions in the that I found. But so in the book, what I'm looking at is how, you know, to ask who gets mistaken for a god or to ask why why there aren't more women taken for divine really gets at the heart of the question of, well, what does God look like? And for so many, you know, in particularly Christian tradition um, or the traditions of, of the myth makers or those who are writing the stories, God is male and specifically a white man, um, kind of bearded father. Um, and so you don't have more women who are mistaken for gods because they just don't look like God. And so what I'm looking at in the book, you know, is how these myths of men who are mistaken for God actually played into the modern construction of masculinity itself. So to go back to the, the violent brigadier, John Nicholson, he actually appears in all of these 19th century texts that really kind of constructed our sense of how a man should be. Um, so for instance, like the Boy Scouts manual, the original Boy Scouts manual had this play for boys to act out the apotheosis of Nicholson or Samuel Smiles's text, Self-Help, which was kind of a foundational text of the genre, also invoked Nicholson as like this idol of modern masculinity. So figures such as Nicholson, who were men mistaken for gods, were, are kind of deeply embedded in the history of, of what we understand, how we understand modern masculinity. How many instances did you find of people or men being anointed as gods and then being de-anointed or it seems like once you're assigned as a god it's hard for that status to change and um especially because of the kind of uh, sign seeking the always looking for or interpreting any action as a sign again of divinity that it's like you can do once you're a god you can do no wrong and and what you do is always interpreted even even you know like a lot of people talk about like a christian god how can there be a god when there's so much suffering in the world and it's kind of like oh it's part of his plan but i i do remember a few instances of people who were turned divine and then cast out in the book or at least one so was that what, what, is that just completely uncommon or did you find, how much did you find of that? Ooh, that's a really good question. <laughs> now I'm thinking there are certainly some figures who got demoted. Um, I would say that my friend Nathaniel Tarn, sadly, um, is probably not considered a god by anyone in the village of Santiago Atitlan anymore. And there is, you know, in so you might be thinking of, um, there's a chapter about the American military general Douglas MacArthur, who becomes used as this kind of curing deity in a ritual among the Guna people in San Blas in Panama. And then he's kind of used to fight against forces of American imperialism 
himself, um, he's deployed on this mythic plane to undo the damage that that the arrival of American soldiers in Panama had wrought. And then after the ritual, he's just this idol of MacArthur, which is seven feet tall, is just discarded <laughs> in the jungle. Um, and so there are very few instances actually in the book of divinities being demoted. There's also, um, for instance, in the story of Krishnamurti um, and the theosophist, Krishnamurti is this 14-year-old boy who is seized upon by the theosophists as being the next vessel for the Maitreya, who is this kind of Christ, the figure of Christ and the Buddha and kind of all holy figures all rolled into one. Um, and he's groomed to be a god for many years and then takes on his divine mantle and then after a little while, just completely calls it quits. And so he he himself resigns as the living God. Divinity is, there is something that about divinity that is, you know, very difficult to kill. And um, at the end of the book, I've just taken the reader kind of through the deifications of Columbus and Cortez and Captain Cook and all of these white explorers in the new world who kind of set our histories of conquest and imperialism in motion. And then I'm asking, well, how do we rewrite the myths? How do we kill their divinity? How do we kill this, this idea of whiteness as becoming divine? And it's, you know, it, it it's a question that I don't have the answer for, but I think we see it right now in impulses to tear down statues of Columbus or Cook or, you know, the kind of paradigmatic white explorers. So that is that is one very small kind of, speaking of political theater, one kind of theatrical way to try to kill a god, but it's just the beginning. So in that section, you really bring us back to the contemporary moment and to America and to the kinds of uh, versions of divinity that we have here. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, um, I think, uh, as you say, to push back on this idea that the kind of deification or, yeah, deification that happens in this book happens elsewhere and doesn't happen with us <laughs> is really up for debate. So can you talk about that a little bit? What kinds... The, the kinds of divinity that you that you notice and that you see propagated in a place like the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, what is ultimately the heart of the book as I'm looking at at what I what I call white divinity, um, which maybe someone might speak of it as white privilege, which makes it sound kind of like a sort of nice perk. But I think speaking of white divinity actually gets at the heart of the fact that race is about who lives and who dies. And it is a kind of sentencing. And in the book, I'm charting my own kind of creation myth of how, how whiteness itself became deified in America beginning with the arrival of, of white explorers onto the shores of the new world. And 
I look at how concepts from the Spanish Inquisition of limpieza de sangre or kind of clean or pure blood became transferred to the new world and race kind of ceased to be this sort of concept um, of what your grandparents believed and actually became a biological concept that would be visible to anyone who was taught how to see it. And so this concept of race really began to coalesce, you know, just at the moment that these myths of white explorers being hailed as gods in the new world um, were being told and retold by missionaries um, and in history books. And in the book, I'm suggesting that really did contribute to our sense of whiteness as being divine. And so I think when you look at white supremacy movements today, there is something deeply mythological about them. Yeah, um, you know, it, I, I did think in the book of, for instance, like QAnon, and, and of course, this line of like conspiracy and belief and divine um, seem like wires that are just totally crossed. And Q does seem like kind of anointed to this godlike status. And again, that goes back to Trump is really coming into focus, reading your book as someone who's been anointed to being like a god for um, a, a certain group of people. And I guess it it kind of goes back to the what we're talking about in the beginning of, of it seems like a political belief is subject to debate, but a religious belief is not. There's no, once you say you believe, especially actually in the United States, there's a lot of credence given to um, ideas of, of belief and that there's just kind of no way to disentangle or to talk those down. Do you think that's true? Do you have ideas about even where you would start questioning people's beliefs when in this country, especially we seem to allow people to have them, whatever they may be? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I think in some ways this entire project was kind of driven by my discomfort with belief and the word belief and even just being asked myself, do you believe in God? I've always kind of found that word to be just deeply freighted with particularly Christian baggage. It kind of presupposes a right or wrong answer. Um, and it, belief itself, you know, even just the word has an its own particular history and lots of different traditions or cultures didn't have a word that exactly corresponds to the English belief. And it is true in America, if something becomes a belief, it's, you know, inviolable, um, it's sacred. Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying to capture is how actually all political beliefs have this kind of religious, are like deeply inseparable from the religious because our partitioning of the spheres of politics and religion themselves into these like different watertight entities, that itself is just a modern invention. You have to see past that in order to try to understand what's happening with, you know, QAnon and Trump or just watching the footage of the January 6th riots on the Capitol and the QAnon shaman in his horned helmet. Like you kind of can only understand that by looking towards a more kind of mythological transcendent plane. 
which in my book, I use the word mythopolitics, which it's not a word that's in the dictionary and doesn't really get used very often, but I think it it is a way to try to speak to to what's everywhere around us and we we haven't really found a word for it yet. Well that that seems like an excellent place to end. Anna Delasuban, thank you so much for joining us. Oh thank you so much for having me. It's it's great talking to you both. We've been speaking with Anadella Subin, author of Accidental Gods. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. <laughs> <laughs>